Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 14th, 2021, and this is show number 827. Well, before we get started, I'd like to give a little shout out to Steve, because this week was our 38th wedding anniversary. I am still amazed every single day that he chose me. In the last Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, Lindsay Tondi made her debut appearance where we talked about working from home. After the show published, Alistair Jenks wrote to me and told me that halfway through listening to that episode, he had to stop listening and start writing down notes for a recording he was going to have to make talking about his views on the same subject. Well, I forwarded Alistair's message to Lindsay, and then I connected the two of them, and before I knew what was happening, they had decided that we were going to do a three-way chit-chat across the pond. Alistair comes from a completely different perspective as someone who's worked far from his team for many years. We talk about what works and what doesn't for him in his capacity doing IT support from a technology perspective and even from a how to stop people from asking you questions they could only they could actually find answers for on their own perspective. Hope you guys will give Chit Chat Across the Pond a listen. You can find it in your podcatcher of choice. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. Two weeks ago, I told you about an incredibly powerful and yet surprisingly inexpensive screencasting app called Screenium. I walked you through the features to explain the capabilities, but I also explained that this tool is far too powerful to explain in text how to make a screencast with Screenium. I told you that in short order, the first of two video tutorials would be posted to the subscription-based tutorial service Screencast Online. The first tutorial, entitled Screenium 3 Basics, is now published on Screencast Online. After watching the basics tutorial, you'll understand how to configure things like your microphone and your camera and how to record your Mac screen and even an iOS device. You'll learn how to create compositions and work with the timeline editor to split tracks, add transitions, add chapter marks, and execute other non-destructive editing and how to export your masterpiece. The even better news is that since I was already on a roll with Screenium and I had mind mapped most of the application already, I started working on the advanced tutorial for Screenium as soon as I was done with the basics tutorial. The advanced tutorial is in the Screencast Online pipeline to come out in about two weeks, barring any unforeseen changes to the schedule. I'm very proud of these these two tutorials. Screenium is a great tool, but much of the interface is unusual, so it took a lot of work to learn the tool well and to be able to understand the intricacies of it. That's the real value, uh, the real value add, I should say, of Screencast Online tutorials. If you're not already a member, you can get a free seven-day trial, but remember that you have a good chance of getting hooked on the service because you get access to the entire back catalog. Now, another option is to, sub- is to subscribe to the Screencast Online magazine, which gives you articles by tech luminaries, as well as all of the video tutorials for the month. You have to wait a bit longer to get the video tutorials, but it's a really great way to consume the Screencast Online goodness. Oh, and if you do subscribe to the video service, you get the magazine along with it for no extra cost. I told you a while ago that I took Frank's advice recently and I got the Chargen Pro Airfoams Pro ear tips, which dramatically improved the sound and sealing of the headphones in my ears and that they also stayed in my ears much better than Apple's original ear tips. When Frank heard my review, he posted in Slack that I should now try listening to the Tom Hanks movie Greyhound on Apple TV so that I could truly experience this spatial audio everyone is all excited about. I tried it before, but my reaction was kind of, you know, meh. But with the Chargen Pro ear tips, I finally got why people are losing their minds about this spatial audio thing. 
If you haven't heard it yourself, spatial audio means that no matter where you turn your head, the sound continues to emanate from the source, say an Apple TV or your iPhone. It's actually pretty freaky. And by the way, you don't have to listen to some high-end audio like uh, watching Greyhound on Apple TV Plus because it turns out I'm pretty sure everything works that way. I was watching the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was what, in the late 70s? No, early 70s. And it was on, um, I'm thinking Hulu, and it definitely was doing spatial audio. So I'm not quite sure how that was happening. Anyway, after our two reviews, Frank's and mine, went live, I heard back from a few listeners who said they'd received their ear tips from Chargent Pro, and they arrived with a little note explaining that Chargent Pro is a tiny company. It turns out Charlie plus Jennifer equals Chargen. Isn't that adorable? In the note, they quite nicely suggested that a review on Amazon would go a long way towards advancing their company. Well, I bought my Chargent Pro ear tips directly from Chargent Pro, which meant I couldn't write an Amazon review for them. So instead, I sent them a link to my review so they could see I helped their cause in a different way. Instead of a simple thanks, Charlie did something even better. He pointed out that while I wrote my review about the Chargent Pro active ear tips, I had actually purchased the original Chargent Pro ear tips, not the actives. He sent me a set of the Actives and their $15 Airfoams Pro detachable ear hooks for AirPods Pro. Unfortunately, while the Actives are the most comfortable ear tips I've ever worn, they sadly just didn't stay in my particular ear holes. I was bummed because they were so soft and flexible. I could barely tell they were in my ears. Until they weren't, because they kept falling out. Luckily, I had mistakenly bought the Pro Originals instead of the Pro Actives. Now, I loaned Steve my headphones the other day, and the Pro Actives did fit in his ears. So this is one of those things where you just got to try them and see which ones work for you. But anyway, let's shift gears and talk about the Chargen Pro ear hooks that Charlie sent me. Ages ago, Pat Dingler tried to talk me into trying any brand of ear hook because she was so weary of hearing me swearing into my phone when my AirPods Pro would fall out when I was on a call with her. I immediately dismissed the idea of any kind of ear hook because I knew it would be a pain in the backside to take them on and off every time I charge my AirPods Pro to be able to fit them in the case. I'm a habit-driven person, and my habit here is that I always charge the case whenever I take my AirPods Pro out of the case, so I'd have to do this dance literally every single time I used the AirPods Pro. In the years that Pat has been hearing me say non-Girl Scout safe words every time I knock my AirPods out of my ears while talking to her, it's gotten much worse in the last year. I'm betting you can guess why. I call her on my long outdoor walks, and I'm constantly putting on my mask and taking it off. I've got a 62.3% success rate taking the mask off without catching one AirPod stem or the other and knocking it out of my ear. Since Charlie was so nice to comp me the $15 Airfoams Pro ear hooks, I figured I might as well give them a try. The Airfoams Pro ear hooks come with two rubbery, flexible sets, one white and one translucent. It's surprisingly easy to put the Chargen Pro ear hooks onto the AirPods once you get the hang of it. The hard part, for me at least, is to figure out which one goes on the left side and which one goes on the right. There are holes of different shapes in the rubber ear hooks, so as you tug them onto the AirPods, you're meant to line these holes up with the matching black sensor areas on the AirPods. That's actually helpful because if you have the holes lined up correctly, then the ear hooks will be correctly aligned to actually stick in your ear. Now maybe it's just me, but even without messing around with the ear hooks, I can't tell the left AirPod Pro from the right. However, with the translucent version of the Chargent Pro ear hooks, it actually magnifies and kind of highlights the letter R and L on the AirPods Pro. 
That was kind of a nice treat. Kind of a little bonus prize to help me get them into the correct ear after I put the ear hooks onto them. Now, my one trick for speeding up putting on ear hooks is that I always put them in the box in the same way with the left one on the left and the right one on the right. I found a spot for the box that's always in the same place and doesn't get moved around. If I couldn't do that, I think I'd put a red dot with some nail polish on one of them. Once I stopped having trouble of trying to put the wrong one on the wrong AirPod, I found that it takes me maybe an extra minute, maybe a minute and a half now, probably not even that, to get ready for my walks to put them on. My walks are 30 minutes at the very shortest, so that's a pretty small investment to clean up my language when talking to Pat and to minimize the probability of dropping an AirPod down a storm drain. I've been using the Airforms Pro earhooks on every walk for the last two weeks, and only once in all that time have I flipped an AirPod out of my ear pulling my mask off. And Pat's delicate sensibilities are no longer subject to my sailor-level epithets. Now, I wouldn't call these life-changing, but I'm hooked on the Charge-In Pro earhooks, and like I said, for 15 bucks, they're a great way to keep my AirPods Pro in my ears. If you do go check out the ear tips or ear hooks made by Charge-In, do take a gander at all of the other nifty products they sell. They've got several really interesting looking USB-C hubs and a hub for the Windows Surface Go. They've got a stand for the iPhone that's actually a charging stand with a uh, spot to charge your AirPods Pro or your AirPods uh, at the same time, and they've got an iPad stand. Now, both of these uh, stands are right now about to go into Kickstarter. But for the first of all, they're really, really gorgeous. So I put the phone one definitely on my uh, on my birthday list. But if you give them a dollar, you can reserve a spot in the Kickstarter to get twenty five percent off when they do come out. I realize that's kind of like fixing to make a plan that it's a uh, it's a dollar to be in the queue of the Kickstarter when they do the Kickstarter and they haven't even done the Kickstarter yet. But the product looks really, really beautiful. I'm I'm excited about it. One of my favorite conferences of the year is the CSUN Assistive Tech Conference. Steve and I were really on the fence whether to attend last year in person, and we pulled out at the last minute as all of our friends' companies had canceled their trips. In retrospect, of course, I'm very glad we didn't go last year. This is the first time CSUN has held the conference virtually, and I think they did a really good job. The conference has a fairly standard format with some pre-conference workshops that you can pay for, tons of individual presentation sessions, and an exhibit hall. The conference is only $425 for four days, which is really inexpensive. The exhibit hall is actually free. So if you're ever in the Southern California area this time next year, you might want to stop by because it's, uh, the exhibit hall is really good fun. In the past, Steve and I have just gone down for one day and covered the exhibit hall, but this year I've been trying to attend some sessions as well. In a way, being virtual allows me to see many more sessions than I normally would. I have to confess that I didn't figure that out right away. Partway through the conference, I went back and I looked at the sessions and I realized that everything that had been shown earlier was available because they were all pre-recorded. Instead of having to choose between concurrent sessions and always feeling like I might have missed the better one, potentially I could see all of them. The other advantage of this is that I could start watching a session, and if I realized it wasn't of interest to me, I could bail without hurting the presenter's feelings. I was also able to fast forward to where the good part started. In a few cases where the presentations were really good, I went back and I watched the front material. The only downside of this is that now I have no excuse for not watching more presentations. Today I'd like to tell you about two presentations about Section 508. I'll explain what that is and the two different angles to the same topic. 
1998, Congress amended the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 to require federal agencies to make their electronic and information technology accessible to people with disabilities. This is commonly referred to as Section 508. I attended a panel presentation entitled Accessibility in the Federal Workspace in COVID Times. They started out by explaining that the federal government is the largest employer in the United States with 9 million people currently working for the government. They talked about the changes that took place for people who require assistive technology when they were sent home to work. They first explained that there are actually many benefits of telework for accessibility. For example, not having to travel is a great benefit. Eliminates the need to make special requests for a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. It means no navigation problems for the visually impaired. In addition, if you work from your own home, you can personalize your own environment to fit your own needs. You can have your volume cranked up and not bother coworkers if you have hearing impairments. You have the flexibility to move your monitor super close if you're low vision. If a host, uh, a host of meetings send their presentations ahead of time, you can open them in your own accessible environment. With larger online meetings, people use the raise your hand function, which makes for a more orderly conversation for everyone, but also makes the sign language interpreter's job much easier. Now, it wasn't all roses for accessibility when workers in the federal government started working for home, from home, I should say. The government, like many companies, relies on Microsoft Teams. Kathy Eng explained that they have a 508 listserv. If you don't know what that is, it's like a discussion forum. And it lit up with issues when people began working from home. Since the government is such a large employer, they had leverage to bring Microsoft in to start fixing their problems. Ms. Eng was very complimentary about Microsoft's response, both in how rapidly they fixed things and also in how willing they were to get things working better from an accessibility standpoint. She didn't give a lot of examples, but one she did highlight was that by default, there was a video limitation that didn't allow people to view the speaker presentation and the sign language interpreter at the same time. Microsoft immediately removed that restriction and fixed the problem. The presenters then switched gears and started talking very specifically about Section 508 and how the government attacked the problem of ensuring that all of their own websites and mobile tools are fully accessible. I've worked to ensure podfeed.com is accessible, and even for a very simplistic blog-based site like mine, that took a lot of time. Ms. Eng explained that manual testing for accessibility is a very slow process, while automated testing is fast but limited in its success. A hybrid approach makes sense, but even then there are challenges because it's difficult to understand exactly what is required to make a website be accessible. In order to combat the ambiguity, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, has created the Information and Communication Technology Testing Baseline. You're going to love this part. Section 508 ACT Testing Baseline is an open source GitHub project. How cool is that? But just having these guidelines clarified wasn't enough. They created a rigorous training program, and if you pass the training, you can get certified as a trusted tester. Now, I'm just spitballing here, but it sounds to me like that would be a highly valued certification if someone out there listening is looking for a job. All of the training to become a trusted tester is available online, and it's free. The other piece of the puzzle was to create a tool to assist the trusted testers in evaluating websites. The tool they developed is called ANDI, A-N-D-I, which stands for Accessible Name and Description Inspector. It's a web browser bookmarklet, and it runs on Chrome, Microsoft Edge, Firefox, Safari, and even Internet Explorer. 
I kind of like saying even Internet Explorer after all the years it was always all about Internet Explorer. <laughs> but anyway, you know I couldn't resist the temptation to install Andy myself and give it a go. I'm going to describe my experience with Andy in a separate article, though, so let's keep going with the CSUN presentations about Section 508. Now, I know talking about government regulations isn't normally something to get excited about, but I really find the subject fascinating, and anything I can do to improve the accessibility of the web is going to be high on my list. The second presentation I attended uh, that focused on Section 508 was even more interesting. It was given by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence with representatives from the NSA, the National Security Agency, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. This presentation highlighted something that really surprised me. While Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 forms the cornerstone of government information technology inclusion efforts, it turns out the Rehabilitation Act provides a national security exemption from compliance for military command and control, weaponry, intelligence, and cytological information technology systems. In other words, they can simply say, whoa, this is national intelligence, so we don't have to make our stuff accessible. But here's the cool part. Michael Washell, Acting Intelligence Community uh, Chief Information Officer and Deputy Intelligence Communication Chief Information Officer, explained that they decided that wasn't really a strategy for success to just keep using that exemption. I wish I had transcribed his words more carefully because he was eloquent and impassioned in his delivery of this message. He said that if you're not allowing a diverse workforce, you can easily get into groupthink. Groupthink leads to a reduction in knowledge. In the intelligence community, they simply can't risk making those kinds of mistakes. One of the biggest things I learned as head of our diversity council in my job was that diversity inclusion and inclusion are not about being nice and helping people who are unfortunate. It's about strengthening your workforce and increasing your competitive advantage. Once you get that, you become an impassioned supporter of diversity of all kinds, including accessibility. Mr. Washell went on to explain that it is possible to exercise the exemption from Section 508, but you have to apply for it to the Director of National Intelligence. I interpreted this as, you better have a really good case before you even think about trying to get an exemption. Next, Dr. Paula Briscoe, Senior Executive Management Officer at the Officer of National Intelligence, described her experience working in the intelligence community. She's been legally blind since birth, and so came into the office knowing the accommodations she needed. Back when she came in, the DNI assigned an individual to help her acquire and install her tools. Today, she said they ask instead, what tasks are you trying to accomplish, instead of what tools do you need to use? And she's not certain that is a better approach. Now, to me, it sounded a lot like, what problem are you trying to solve? So I was curious why she didn't think that was the right approach. She went on to explain that it's important to listen to the person who's telling you what tech they think would be helpful because they're actually the subject matter expert. This is a good point because, you know, all types of vision impairments are not the same. All types of mobility issues are not the same. All types of cognitive, cognitive issues are different. And all types of hearing impairments are not identical. Dr. Briscoe said she wasn't paid to say this, but that she has never once felt that her disability ever held her back working at the agency. She started as a junior GS, which I looked up, it stands for general schedule. Gotta love the government. Anyway, she started as a junior GS and she's now a senior executive. Her enthusiasm for the work she's been able to do at the DNI was really infectious. 
But her enthusiasm was nothing compared to that of Daniel Hetrick, NSA Information Community, I'll get this yet, NSA Information Communication Technology Accessibility Team Lead at the Department of Chief Information Officer National Security Agency. Man, they got long titles there. Anyway, this guy was on fire about his job. He explained that he started as a co-op at the NSA, and 20 years after he started, he had a stroke that, as he described, took out his left side. I knew about Section 508 before hearing him talk, but he talked about two executive orders that really drove change for accessibility in the government. Executive Order 13163 by President Clinton in July of 2000 was an order to promote an increase in the opportunities for individuals with disabilities— which from my reading had some cool stuff in it, but not a lot of detail, you know, not a lot of teeth in it about how to achieve the lofty goal it described of hiring 100,000 qualified individuals with disabilities into the federal government. Apparently, President Obama felt the same way that it didn't have a lot of teeth because he issued Executive Order 13548 in July of 2010, and that put teeth behind the goal. He, it called for, with delivery dates, model recruitment and hiring strategies, specific plans to follow those strategies, and that every agency would have to designate a senior-level executive to be accountable for meeting the goals of the order. Now we add some real teeth into the vision put forward by the Clinton administration. Well, the reason Mr. Hetrick brought up the 100,000-person goal for the government was that suddenly there was this massive influx of employees with accessible tech needs. He described the changes he saw in government as the entire strategy had to change. He also emphasized that these changes included holding contractors accountable for accessibility and by putting language in their contracts that specifically said they will not accept deliverables that don't meet their requirements for accessibility. Now, you can see how this top-down strategy called, caused real change across the government and then across the technology landscape to all tools. Now, if you write a tool, you create a tool, you certainly would want the largest employer in the United States to be able to buy it, wouldn't you? Well, Mr. Hetrick spoke with noticeable glee about how it was nothing short of a miracle to get all of these organizations to understand why having accessible tools is so critical. He said that he's thrilled to go to work every day to see the progress happening and that he feels like he's watching the last piece of a giant puzzle finally falling into place. I realized at the end that for the community of people with assistive tech needs, this presentation was the best recruiting video I've ever seen. One of the reasons you don't hear ads on any of the PodFeed podcasts is because of the fine people who have chosen to support our work here by going to Patreon. I've never done this before, but I'd like to make a quick thanks to the top 10 lifetime supporters of the shows. Thank you to Yope Brugink, Bob Lay, Daily Tech News Show, Mac Lurker, Doug Ingram, Tom Stewart, Richard Nelson, Steve Davidson, Brett Holly, and John Atwood. I can't thank you enough for your financial support and demonstrating so vividly that you find value in the podcast. If you'd like to become a patron like these fine folks, head on over to podfeed.com slash Patreon. Everything is fiddly. Everything is fiddly. Typically, this section only includes the end-user perspective, but today I wanted to tell you that things are fiddly for developers as well, or at least the hobbyist developer, like myself. I maintain a Safari app extension called Open Access Helper, which helps you find legal open access copies for scientific articles. It works great on scientific publisher websites, but, sorry to disappoint, 
is not going to help you overcome the New York Times paywall, just in case you wondered. The other week, I implemented a new feature. It tested well on Catalina and Big Sur. It met all my acceptance criteria, and so I shipped. I was ever so proud. When the app landed in the App Store, the new feature no longer worked in Catalina, but worked just fine in Big Sur. So off I go to my Catalina-based machine, open Xcode, and ran the project. The feature worked. No errors in the console. I knew the area of the code to look at. It looked fine. I double-checked the official developer documentation. Still good. So I go and build a notarized version of the app. That worked just fine, too. At this point, I'm desperately considering if I needed to ship an old version with a new version number. That's a desperate move, so I reached out to Jeff Johnson of Stop the Madness fame on Twitter. He is ever so generous with his time, and unlike myself, he knows what he's doing. Sadly, we didn't figure it out right away. An hour or so later, he DM'd me with a hunch. He's seen this type of thing before when the size of the popover was not set right. I double-checked all possible areas and then found one area that felt wrong from the get-go, but it came straight out of the developer documentation example. I shipped on a hunch because I could not prove it would fix it, but it didn't break it either. I was lucky. It did work. But I learned a lesson. The Apple developer documentation is sometimes not great, but at other times will lead you down the wrong track. With the bug being only visible on the Mac App Store version and only in Catalina, I think this one qualifies as everything is fiddly. Well, that's for sure, Klaus. Oh, how frustrating is that? You're following the rules, you're doing exactly what they're telling you to do, and that's why it doesn't work. Well, I haven't delved into writing Apple-specific apps, but from what I hear, their API documentation leaves an awful lot to be desired. Hi, this is Jill from the North Woods. I've always been a math girl. The world makes sense in math. It has rules that you must follow. Logical, orderly, everything fits inside those rules. But when it comes to writing, that is an art that has so many fiddly parts. I've never been a very good writer. So when it comes to doing show notes for my podcast, I struggle quite a bit to get them done. It takes a lot of time. And so the process that I go through when doing my show notes is first I record the podcast, then I run it through otter.ai, which does a fair job of translating what I'm saying. But there's a lot of fixing up that I need to do. So then the next step is I run the otter document through Grammarly. Now, I love Grammarly because it helps me navigate all those weird rules that exist within writing and reduces my frustration in trying to get this otter document into a usable show note format. As much as I love Grammarly and all the ways it helps me to get show notes out, I just wish that it would either allow you to choose settings about how you like to do commas or common fixes and how you see the rules. And then just have a button that goes through your text and absolutely makes those changes. There are things like placement of hyphens, placements of commas, capital letters, all those types of things that if I could just push one button it would clear out 95% of the mistakes that Grammarly finds with the otter.ai text or fixing any grammatical mistakes I made while recording my podcast. But instead, Grammarly insists on asking you each step, each comma, if you want to change those over. 
yeah, if the comma needs to be there, I want you to change the comma. If it's supposed to be a hyphen there, please put a hyphen there. Now, I completely understand asking me if they should try to rewrite one of my sentences, but commas, punctuations, and things that are grammatically incorrect? Don't even ask me. I trust you. Just make those changes for me. If the people at Grammarly could just make my life less fiddly by giving a do these things every time button, I would love them forever. But seriously, I really do love them. But don't tell them I love them or they'll never give me my instant grammar fix button. Well, I love this, Joel, because I think of Grammarly as the your commas are all wrong tool. It seems that 90% of what it suggests are commas I've forgotten or commas I've put in that it says I shouldn't have used. My policy is to pretty much accept all of its comma changes. So like you, Jill, I probably just like a fix all button. However, I was taught that there should always be a comma right before a quote. And yet today, Grammarly tried to get me to remove one. You know what else is fiddly here? I ran Grammarly on my comments to this very post, and it incorrectly told me to use T-O-O when the correct word was T-O in one of my sentences. That happens all the time with Apple's built-in tools, too. With all that said, both Jill and I rely heavily on Grammarly, and you definitely would notice far more mistakes in the blog post at podfeed.com if I didn't use it every single time I write an article. But even with that... I got to tell you, Sandy still finds lots of mistakes when she proofreads for me, too. Grammarly may be fiddly from time to time, but it's less fiddly than I am. Thanks a lot for playing our game, Jill. I hope it helped to get this off your chest. Well, I want to play the game, too. I was watching a video on my iPad Pro this week, and I wanted a richer, louder sound, so I used Control Center to switch the audio to the HomePod Mini that was sitting right next to my iPad. It worked great. After a bit, I wanted to change rooms, so again, using Control Center, I switched the audio output to the iPad. I hit play on my video, and while the video advanced, I couldn't hear anything. After going in and out of Control Center a few times, suddenly I got a drop-down notice telling me that the charge level of my left AirPod Pro was down to 15%. Okay, there's a bunch of problems with this story so far, because first of all, I wasn't trying to connect to my AirPods Pro. I wasn't even trying to talk to them. Second of all, while I did take them on an hour-long walk listening to podcasts that very morning, the case charged that whole time, and they were promptly put back in the case three hours before this happened in order to charge. So they might have been worn down at one point, but they were in the case to charge, and suddenly they're announcing that their charge is down to 15%. Thirdly, the AirPods Pro were sitting in that case in my purse three rooms away from my iPad. So to recap, I wasn't talking to them. They should have been charged. There was no reason for them to start talking to me at all. And I still couldn't hear my video. But wait, it gets even better. As I was surrounded by this fiddliness, Steve said he'd like to borrow my AirPods because he was going to go through the Apple health studies and the hearing one requires AirPods. I gave them him my misbehaving headphones and for the life of him, he couldn't get them to pair to his phone. I checked my iPhone and then on my iPad to see if either were connected to the AirPods, but they weren't. Guess what they were connected to? They were connected to my Mac. I disconnected the AirPods from my Mac and then, wait for it, the audio on the iPad started to work again. Well, as Forbes says, everything is fiddly. 
In my article I was telling you about earlier about accessibility in the federal government, I explained that they had created a tool to help them assess their own websites for accessibility errors, and I told you it's called Andy, Accessible Name and Description Inspector. I teased that I'd installed it, and then I'd tell you more about how it works in this later article. To review, Andy installs as a bookmarklet for your web browser, and it works with Chrome, Microsoft Edge, Firefox, Safari, and even Internet Explorer. There's a link in the show notes where you can download it yourself. Now, I've spent a lot of time on podfeed.com working to eliminate every accessibility problem I could find using another tool called the Wave Web Accessibility Evaluation Tool. I've got a link to that in the show notes as well. So I assumed podfeed.com would perform really well on the Andy tests. It did well, but I definitely found problems I, I hadn't checked out before testing with Andy. When you select the bookmarklet while on the web page you want to test, and note, this is just checking a web page, so you have to look at more than just maybe your home page. You have to check every type of page you create. When you uh, select that bookmarklet, when you're on the web page you want to test, a banner will be displayed across the top of your browser window with a drop-down menu entitled Focusable Elements. As you select each element option, the tool will identify potential issues with that web page. Every alert doesn't mean catastrophe, which is why a hybrid approach of a tool and a human is the only way to be successful in fixing these issues. Let's walk through the seven focusable elements in Andy. Graphics slash images is the first one, and it checks to ensure that every meaningful non-decorative image has a text equivalent. So, you know, if you have flowers decorating your site, they don't have to say flower and text on them, but if the graphic has any meaning, it's important to explain the meaning of the graphic in hidden text for screen readers. Links and buttons ensures that every link and button on the page has a text equivalent so that screen readers will successfully read out their purpose. The worst thing in the world is to have unidentified elements like buttons labeled simply button. Oh, and here's a pro tip. When you're labeling your buttons, don't put the word button in the description because the screen reader already knows it's a button. That's the kind of element it is. But if you do put a button in the description, the, vo the viewer will hear something like back button button. So don't put button in the description because it knows it's a button. Okay? <laughs> anyway, tables is the next one, and it's similar to the previous two elements, where it checks to make sure that every data table cell has a contextual equivalent. Makes sense. Structures, um, I don't know, that one didn't explain exactly what errors it's seeking, but I know what it's checking to make sure that it's checking to make sure you're using headings. I used to make every new section in my blog post just a line that was bold, but it turns out screen reader users rely heavily on headings in order to jump to the content in which they're interested. As much as I hate to admit that Markdown is useful because I've always complained that Markdown is stupid, it does make creating headings way, way easier. All I have to do to create a heading is put two hashes at the uh, beginning of a line, and that makes a heading level two, for example. Use headings, they're easy, you can style them with your CSS, and they add usability to your website. Now, the next one, color contrast, is the bane of my existence. If you want a double-A rating for contrast, the contrast ratio has to be at least 4.5 or higher. Well, I say it was the bane of my existence because while the Wave tool would tell me my color contrast was too low, it wouldn't tell me what to do about it. Like if I had like a pink on white, well, how much darker does the pink need to be to be 4.5? I don't know. How am I supposed to figure that out? 
When Andy finds a low contrast error area, it actually gives you a similar color combination you can change to in order to give the element high enough contrast to improve visibility. It's perfectly easy. It just goes, you know, you got this color number, this hex code, just change it to this one, you'll be golden. Now, hidden content was the next one, and that's a little bit confusing to me. It says that it will discover hidden content that should be tested for accessibility using other Andy modules. Well, the only problem is that I haven't yet figured out how to access the other modules, so I don't really know what to do with that one. Now, I said there were seven focusable elements, and I've only listed six so far. The seventh element is iframes, and it turns out you only see that seventh one if you're on a page that has an iframe. That took me a while to figure out because I was like, I swear it had iframes here. Why am I only seeing six elements now? Well, anyway, iframes are kind of a janky way to embed things onto a web page from another source. Now, while most of my pages came through with relatively flying colors using Andy to test them, that iframe test showed me some real problems. People have often asked me to have a page where they can see all of the hardware and software I use to create the podcast. The page I created was, to be as complimentary as possible, <laughs> it was a hot mess. It was ugly, it was out of date, it was filled with Amazon affiliate links that are no longer valid, three of the links were completely broken, and Andy found that the iframes were inaccessible. My solution? I deleted the web page. <laughs> then I got to thinking, man, I've got other pages with embedded elements. On the NoSilicast Live page, I've embedded a Discord chat window, and I've embedded the YouTube Live video, both of which are in iframes. I discovered, because of, An uh, because of Andy, that they were unnamed. A quick, a quick search of the internets revealed that giving them a title would make them accessible, and about three minutes, completely fixed. So easy to do, it was so easy to identify with Andy, and it was easy to fix. I learned about something else that I've been doing wrong because of running the Andy tests. 100% of the time I put an image on podfeed.com, I include the alternate text or alternative text. That's also often called alt text. That's the, the text that tells the screen reader user what the image is about. So if I put in a picture of, uh, say, the Screenium logo, I will put into the description, into the alt text, Screenium logo. Sometimes in an article, I'll wrap a link around an image. For example, in Klaus's short Everything is Fiddly post about how sketchy it is to use Apple's documentation to ensure po proper publication of his open access helper extension for Safari, I decided to put an image from the Mac App Store of his app. Once I had the image in there, with the appropriate alt text, of course, I figured I'd help people find his extension by wrapping the image in a link to the Mac App Store. Now, here's the problem that Andy highlighted. While the image has a description with the alt text, screen reader users have no idea where the link will take them without listening to a very long glop-filled URL. Turns out I should have been adding titles to all of these links wrapped around images. I absolutely did not know this till Andy taught me. It won't be hard to add them at all since I've already written the alt text. I can just copy that and paste it into a title. In fact, I immediately made a text expander snippet with a clipboard paste so I won't have to do it by hand. I'll be looking at all of the special pages with Andy. and Those are ones that I create in some different way than the regular blog posts. And going forward, I'll be doing my linked images with proper titles. But I can tell you, I'm not going to go back through 16 years of blog posts to fix them. I'm sorry. If you find one that's bugging you, I'll go fix it. But I'm not going back 16 years. Now, you might think I'm a swell human for making PodFeed as accessible as possible. 
But remember what Michael Waschel, Acting Intelligence Community CIO, said about accessibility. He said, if you aren't inclusive, you get groupthink, and then you make bad decisions. I want everyone on this entire planet, and potentially other planets, to be able to consume the content I produce here. This is essential so people will tell me when and where I'm wrong, and then we all collectively get a little bit smarter. Well, that's going to wind it up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, your everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a patron like those fine folks I talked about earlier? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation? Podfeed.com slash PayPal. Want to join in the conversation? Try podfeed.com slash Facebook or podfeed.com slash Slack. We're having fun in both places. And if you want to have fun in the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay followed.